Thank you, John. I will be very impressed if anyone gets that last question correct. <laughs> so usually this is supposed to be great debates and updates. Um, I guess there's nothing to debate in CLL because everything is resolved. So hopefully uh, I can just have a great update. Here are my disclosures. So on today's agenda, what I really want to do is to sort of update everyone on sort of the data that we have from ASH and how this really fits in. You know, we have a lot of long-term data regarding FCR from the FCR 300, which are 300 consecutive patients treated at MD Anderson. Um, and you know, those data we have up to 12.8 year follow-up on those patients. Um, we also have now from ASH some seven-year follow-up data on ibrutinib's phase two. So some very, very nice long-term phase two data, which we won't violate any statistical rules and compare side by side. Um, but we also have two clinical trials looking at chemoimmunotherapy, namely FCR, compared to ibrutinib and ibrutinib rituximab in elderly patients and in not elderly patients, our young patients, um, that were also presented um, at the uh, at ASH in 2018. And so it will be important to sort of look at these data and decide how you want to apply them to your practice. So here's a list of approved agents for CLL. Of course, we're certainly not, um, we're not suffering for a lack of agents, but I think we are suffering for a lack of knowledge on how to use these agents. What I really do want to emphasize is we have this, you know, 2010 cut, where prior to 2010, we only had chemotherapy and chemoimmunotherapy. And since 2010, there's been an array of new agents. And it's important to recognize that, you know, once again, we need to evaluate how we treat our patients and how we measure the success of our treatments. So we no longer need to measure, you know, our treatment success as MRD or in terms of depth of response, but really PFS is really what's most important. And I can foresee a future where we can cycle patients between all these different drugs and as long as they don't accumulate toxicities, we can actually get patients a very, very long time into their future. So here's the FCR curves, the progression-free survival and overall survival for these 300 patients treated at MD Anderson with FCR at standard doses. And you can see, is there a pointer? No, no? I don't think so. Okay, no pointer, sorry. So you can see here that we actually have um, a median PFS of 6.4 years for the population overall, and a median overall survival of 12.7 years for the population overall. Now, a number that is actually going to be very important to keep in mind is the progression-free survival at 12.8 years of 30.9%. And as it turns out, there's really been no one who has relapsed beyond year 7.2. So it really looks like that there's a plateau on this curve. And the question is, you know, whether or not this plateau represents a group of patients who are cured, and actually if we can identify who these patients are and sort of use this information in pre-selecting patients who might be at great or at high likelihood of benefiting from FCR. So looking a little bit more at this plateau, it turns out that it's 74% of the patients on this plateau are mutated immunoglobulin genes, all right? So these are patients with Im mutated immunoglobulin genes which normally have a good prognosis. 
30.9% of them will do extremely well. I'm sorry, 30.9% of the population, but of the mutated immunoglobulin gene patients, 53.9% overall will actually be free from progression at 12.8 years. The comparison for the unmutated group you can see there is 8.7 years. So we now have an ability to identify a group of patients who have a 50-50 chance of really doing extremely well with chemoimmunotherapy. That's the benefits. Now we've got to look at the downsides because one of the problems, of course, is that we can't choose where we're going to be on the curve. We can't choose whether or not we're going to be the person on the plateau or the person not on the plateau. So first, we have to look at sort of the reproducibility. So here we have the German CLL study group, which looked at fludarabine, cytoxin, and rituxan compared to fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and is basically the same regimen as the MDR reg M I'm sorry, MD Anderson regimen. And what you can see here for comparison purposes, because things always seem to work out a little better in Texas. So we have a median PFS of 6.4 years from the MD Anderson group, where it's 4.7 years for the German CLL study group. So I think obviously the 4.7 is probably a little closer to the truth, but, and although the follow-up is still short, we certainly would expect there still to be a plateau in these groups of patients. So what happens to these patients? And these are the data, again, from the FCR 300 series. So 58% of the patients who die, die from CLL. 18.4% die from other cancers. 15.4% die from a Richter's transformation. That's not the incidence of Richter's, but that's 15.4% of the deaths. 6.6% .6 of the patients die from infections while in remission. And overall, 71% of the deaths that occurred were in patients who were in first remission. So clearly, we have to be careful in choosing our regimen because there certainly could be a high cost to pay. Now, looking at secondary cancer specifically, what we see is that there's an 8% incidence of Richter's transformation. There's a 6.3% chance of hematologic malignancy, um, mostly AML, and then 21% risk of other cancers, excluding non-melanomatous skin cancers. So I really want to focus on the hematologic malignancies because MDS and AML, what are grouped together as secondary myeloid neoplasias really represent an end game for our patients. These really are sort of that, that horrible sequelae that we really are unlikely to get our patients back from. So we talk about secondary MDS and AML typically being somewhere between two and eight years after people initiate treatment. And so one would think that, you know, because we have 12.8 years of follow-up, that maybe we actually have seen the peak or we've seen what we would expect. One of the questions, though, of course, and I actually missed this morning, so I don't know if we spoke about clonal hematopoiesis, but with all that we're learning on clonal hematopoiesis and this sort of bottleneck that's created in your stem cells by something like chemotherapy, you know, the question becomes, you know, at 70 years old, these persons who had FCR chemotherapy when they're 50, what is going to be their risk of MDS at that point in time? There's already a background incidence of MDS and AML in the seven-year-olds. Is this group going to be that much higher? So a word of caution is I do expect that we need to wait and see what those long-term data are going to reveal. And then the other problem, of course, with FCR is in those patients who progress, 
which will be half of the mutated patients and 92% of the unmutated patients, median survival is actually only 51 months. And a lot of this is because the CLL comes back very aggressively, and also the patient has had toxicities and unable to actually tolerate additional therapy. So what other options do we have? So the B-cell receptor kinases, you can see the list here. Fosmanatinib actually was the first one, and this was a, a plenary session um, done by Jonathan Freeberg at ASH in 2008. Um, for unclear reasons, it really never went forward in oncology and is now approved for ITP. Uh, we have our BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, which are both approved. Xanabrutinib should be approved shortly. And then we have our PI3 kinase inhibitors, Idella, Duvelalisib, and Umbralisib, which I expect will be approved within the next 12 months. So I want to review the phase two data for mybrutinib. You know, this is the longest uh, follow-up we have on these patients treated with a B-cell receptor kinase inhibitor and really provides us with some helpful information. So the patients initially treated in what's called the 1102 study, which was the first phase two study, were actually in two cohorts. There was a treatment-naive cohort, which was over 65 years of age, and then there was a relapsed refractory cohort. Initially, the treatment-naive cohort, everyone received 420 milligrams. In the relapsed refractory cohort, patients were actually randomized to either 420 or 840. Because we very quickly saw no difference, everyone was actually converted to 420, and all the data is presented in aggregate. So what I want to point out here, these are the baseline characteristics, is that the 17p deleted incidence in the treatment-naive cohort is about 6%, which is what we typically see published, 3 to 7% as the, the incidence in treatment-naive. Now, interestingly, in the relapse refractory cohort, the incidence is 34%, which is also fairly consistent with what we see published. And for comparison purposes, the Resonate study, which was the Ibrutinib pivotal study, had an incidence of 17p deletion of 35%. And the 116 study, which was Idelisib's pivotal study, had a 17p deletion rate of 45%. And the thing I really want people to think about as we go forward is 17p deletion really dramatically increases from treatment naive to subsequent lines of therapy. And of course, the question is, is how do you get there? How do you get from that 6% to that 34%? And the answer is selecting for it with chemoimmunotherapy. And that's something that I think that we need to think about, and I'll come back to later. So here are the ibrutinib. Uh, it, they're called the seven-year outcomes for some reason, but they give you six-year PFS data. I'm a little unclear as to why. Um, but in the treatment-naive cohort, the median PFS is not reached, and the six-year PFS is 88%. Hint, hint. Um, for the relapse refractory core, you can see the median is 50 months, and the six-year PFS is 37%. So there's definitely a difference between relapsed CLL and treatment-naive CLL. And one of the important is going to be if there's something that we can measure that can help predict for the differences beyond just number of prior therapies. Now, I'd like to point out that the first patient who was that tick on the treatment-naive curve was a 17p-deleted CLL patient who was diagnosed with a Richter's transformation at month eight. And then the second drop on that curve was actually a 17p-deleted CLL patient who actually had CLL, responded to the ibrutinib, and then developed progression of the CLL, but was still CLL. And those were the two 17p-deleted patients 
in that treatment-naive cohort. So I really do believe that 17P deletion is one of the predictors for our patients not doing well. And when we look at the relapse refractory cohort, because of course the numbers were much more um, robust, you can actually see here the difference in outcomes reported by the interface fish abnormalities. What I want to point out is actually subsequent studies, namely a, an aggregate study, which um, I'll show you in a sec, and um, the Resonate studies all showed really no difference um, for 11Q deleted patients. So it really looks like 17P deletion is the most important predictor for patients' um, long-term outcome on ibrutinib. And here you can see the um, integrated analysis of three different clinical trials, including the Resonate, Resonate 2, and Helios. And you can really see that 11Q deleted patients had no worse outcome compared to non-11Q deleted patients on ibrutinib. I also want to look at now the 17P deleted patients because this really represents an important question of what we're going to be looking at. So the NIH did a phase two study that was consisting of treatment-naive patients. Um, there were 35. Um, and then, I'm sorry, um, treatment-naive patients and patients who had P53 dysfunction, either um, 17P deletion or P53 mutation. So there were two groups of these patients um, with abnormal TP53. Um, the treatment-naive cohort was 35 patients, and the relapse refractory cohort was 16 patients. Overall, 47 of the 51 patients had 17P deletion, and four of the 51 patients had a TP53 mutation without a 17P deletion. Any patients with both were included in the 17P uh, cohort or group. So the median follow-up for all these patients was 57 months, and the discontinuation rate for these patients was 5.8% overall. So this was 5.8 for the entire group of patients on the NIH cohort, not just the TP53 dysfunctional patients. But that's important. It definitely is, you know, fly. it's very different from what we often hear published when we look at data from Anthony Mado, who shows a number closer to 23%. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of benefits of having one very experienced investigator managing these patients. It's also going to be a very big difference when you have a very motivated group of patients who are able to get themselves to the NIH. But that's something I really want to emphasize, is that we can keep people on ibrutinib um, with some tricks that um, people, you know, basically, I think, with repeated experiences may actually develop. Overall, um, in, the 17, in the TP53 cohort, there were 17 progressives, progressors. Five were related to Richter's transformations, and 12 were related to CLL progression. So what I really want to show here, and the important thing, is the five-year PFS for the treatment-naive 17P or TP53 dysfunctional patients was 74.4%. And for the relapse refractory patients, it was 19.4%. And I think that this is sort of an important thing to keep an eye on because clearly these are two groups of patients who both have 17P deletion or TP53 dysfunction, but yet we have very different outcomes. And I think obviously the major difference between these two groups, which we know of as just the number of prior therapies, probably translates into other genetic changes that have occurred sort of acquired um, genetic mutations, acquired, you know, resistant mechanisms that the cells obtain 
that sort of enable them to resist ibrutinib. And so I think that this is a very important thing to keep in mind because ibrutinib frontline is going to really do much better than ibrutinib in relapse disease. And it's not just because of the increase in 17p deleted cells. And I think so it's really a combination of both the 17p deletion being present and obviously subsequent therapies creating other unmeasurable um, avenues of resistance. And then the other thing I want to mention here is that the adverse events over time really do decrease. And that's an important thing, obviously, because we are currently planning on having our patients on this therapy for a long time. I do want to point out that the hypertension is the one adverse event that seems to increase over time. So while we haven't yet seen a peak, it's about, in the phase two study here, at about six years, it's about 25%. Um, now, the atrial fibrillation does seem to peak at about two years, and so that really speaks to there being a, a biology about the patient or a protoplasm of the patient that sets them up for AFib or that they'll be fine and not develop atrial fibrillation. So now I want to talk about the two studies that we cited earlier, just sort of look at chemoimmunotherapy versus ibrutinib. The first is an alliance study that looked in elderly CLL. These were patients with untreated CLL over the age of 65. There were no SEER score requirements, so there were no measures of comorbidity, just age over 65. Patients were stratified based upon rise stage, presence or absence of 17P and 11Q deletions, and ZAP-70-methylation. And ZAP-70-methylation is not something commercially available, as we all know. Um, there's a lot of issues, as we also all know, with ZAP-70 testing, expression-level testing. And so one of the ideas that's being put forth by the OSU group is that methylation, where an unmethylated, unmethylated promoter really is indicative of ZAP-70 positivity, might be a reproducible measure of ZAP-70 expression. So whether or not this could actually replace ZAP-70 expression is also being tested as part of the study. What I do want everyone to remember is this study did include 17P-deleted patients, which is part of the controversy around this study. Remember, these were patients who were randomized to receive bendamustine, rituxan, ibrutinib, or ibrutinib-rituximab. And of course, we, we already know that patients who are 17P-deleted are not going to do well with bendamustine, rituximab. So you can see there the randomizations, one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, and the doses that were used. And statistically, the comparisons were BR versus I, BR versus IR, and I versus R. <coughs> um, overall, the patient characteristics were fairly well balanced. What I want to point out once again is the number of 17P deleted patients and um, TP53 mutation patients. So there was a significant number of patients in this group who didn't have 17P deletion but had TP53 dysfunction. We don't know, but one of the data points that will be assessed is whether or not accounting for the 17P deletion actually might change the outcomes of the data overall. But in looking at PFS, ibrutinib and rituximab and ibrutinib as a single agent had a significant improvement in 24-month progression-free survival compared to BR. And you can see the hazard ratios there. And you can see that there was no difference between ibrutinib and ibrutinib-rituximab. Um, of course, there was no difference in overall survival, and this is actually a good thing because patients were allowed to cross over onto ibrutinib if they actually progressed within one year of completing bendamustine rituxan. Now, a huge, 
not a caveat, but one of the things to keep in mind is I do believe that a lot of people who progress after bendamustine rituxan would have gotten ibrutinib regardless. So even if people are progressing after a year and are therefore off trial and still being followed for survival, they would likely have gotten ibrutinib anyway. And so I think what we really are looking at is the overall survival being, you know, these patients being rescued with ibrutinib as second line. That is important to keep in mind because when you look at the Resonate 2 study, which was chlorambucil versus ibrutinib, we actually did see an increased risk of death in the patients who got chlorambucil first and they weren't being rescued by the ibrutinib. So that's an important thing to keep in mind and something that we need to actually think about a little bit more. AEs of interest, and this I think is really one of the most important slides to look at. So previously, or from the 1102 data, we talk about there being a 10% risk of atrial fibrillation in the population overall. Here in the BR group, it was 3%. In the ibrutinib group, it was 17%. And the IR group was 14%. And then hypertension, only grade threes were 14, 29, and 34% for BR, I, and IR respectively, which is actually compared to the 25% that was seen in the ibrutinib phase two data. So that's clearly a significant increase. And I do believe that a lot of what we're looking at is an impact on age on these comorbid, or age on these adverse events. And I'll show you um, the young CLL data as a comparison in a moment. The other thing that raised a lot of controversy regarding the study is there was an increased risk of death in the ibrutinib arms. Now, when you look at the death overall in patients who died on treatment or 30 days post-treatment, it was 1% versus 7 versus 7% for BR, I, and IR, respectively. But of course, patients remained on ibrutinib indefinitely until they progressed or died. And patients had gotten bendamustine rituxan for six cycles. So that would be a way that might bias sort of what we're looking at. So if we just look at the risk of death based upon, or for the first six cycles, and end 30 days post cycle six, be it bendamustine or ibrutinib, the numbers are much closer, 1%, 2% versus 3% respectively. So that would something that would suggest that that sort of normalizes for a lot of the concerns that people first expressed regarding the increased rate of death. The only thing to keep in mind is if we do worry about there being a cardiac toxicity with ibrutinib, that might sort of be seen as this unwitnessed or unexplained deaths. And you can see there that there were two, seven, and four unwitnessed or unexplained deaths in the BR, I, and IR groups, respectively. So now just moving on to the young CLL study. This was done by ECOG. Um, and patients who were untreated and younger than 70, so 70 versus 65, had to be FCR eligible, and 17P deleted patients were excluded. So that's obviously an important difference between these trials. Patients were stratified by age, performance status, stage, and the presence of, seven, of 11Q deletion. And you can see they're randomized two to one to ibrutinib rituxan or FCR at the doses there. And you can see here that there's statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival and overall survival for ibrutinib rituximab as compared to FCR. And you can see the hazard ratios in the data there. Now, interestingly, and one of the things that I think people will take away from this trial and have to think about, is when you look at immunoglobulin G mutational status as a predictor, you know, 
because FCR does worse with the unmutated patients and ibrutinib does equivalent in mutated and unmutated, we actually see the differences magnified in the unmutated population and they actually do go away in the mutated population. Now this is short follow-up and of course, you know, what happens long-term will be important to see. But for now, it looks like the benefit of ibrutinib over FCR in the short term really was just in the unmutated population. Uh, looking at grade three adverse events throughout, you can see here that atrial fibrillation was in the ibrutinib arm 2.9% and hypertension was 7.4%, so f really far lower than what we saw. And I'd really like to emphasize that these were patients younger than 70. So this also supports the idea that there really is a very significant impact of age on the development of these adverse events. And Tate Shanafelt did us a favor and sort of lined everything up side by side. And the data that he used were a little bit different, but you can see here the comparison between IR in the young versus IR in the older patients for AFib being three to six percent respectively and hypertension seven to 34 percent respectively. So in conclusion, um, ibrutinib better than chemoimmunotherapy overall? I think that's a, a debate that every physician needs to have with themselves and with the patient, and the patient needs to have with themselves. Um, one of the important caveats to consider is whether or not we should consider mutational status when we're actually having this discussion. Um, a lot of people have actually talked about combining both together. There is a... Um, slide that Peter Hillman put together that addresses this, once again, that violates all rules of statistics. And what you can see here, looking at the Helio study, which was BR versus BRI, and the Resonate study, which was I versus um, Ofatumumab, the curves for I and BRI are superimposable. These were both relapsed refractory patients, and so it really suggests that maybe the BR added very little to the ibrutinib. Um, and then we've focused really on the short-term toxicities and the differences, but the ultimate question is what are going to be the long-term toxicities and whether or not we actually can predict those from this point in time. So we have 12.8-year follow-up for FCR, and we have seven-year follow-up for ibrutinib. Um, and then, you know, the question about sort of this increased risk of death in the Alliance study what does it mean? Is it something that we need to consider? Now, I do believe very much that we haven't seen this signal earlier, and it's always important to not let one study discount all the earlier studies, but obviously it's something we need to think about and look into more closely. Um, and then ultimately, who decides, the patient or the physician? I mean, I really think we all wear our biases on our sleeves, and most of the time the patients will actually follow their physician, and that's just something important for all of us to keep in mind. Um, in this day and age, but thank you.